Alright folks, welcome into another brand new quarantine edition of the 901 Soccer Podcast. I'm your host, Lawrence Thocker. You can find me on Twitter at LDoc93. You can find the 901 Soccer Podcast on Twitter at 901 Soccer Pod. And you can find us on Facebook as well. Just search 901 Soccer and we should pop right up. What we got going for you on this edition of the show, um, search. we're struggling, we're searching, trying to find content to put out. And uh, the other day, I believe it was the American Outlaws put out a tweet, a hypothetical on where would you like to see, your, where are your five ideal locations for the U.S. men's national team to play their home World Cup qualifiers. So I figured, uh, you know, what the hell, we'll, we'll do that, we'll, we'll have a discussion about that. Uh, that'll be the bulk of the program this time around. There's also a little, a uh, few miscellaneous things I want to touch on. Uh, there's some soccer books uh, that I want to throw out there. Uh, U.S. Soccer ran a poll on their uh, the fan favorite on their favorite kits, and unsurprisingly, the kit that won is the one that they're still selling. I'll talk about that. Uh, a lot of folks been asking me about uh, the Development Academy shutdown. I'll give you uh, very briefly my thoughts on that. There was an article in Sports Illustrated about Carl Yastrzemski, a former Boston Red Sox player, a baseball legend, apparently is the uncle and godfather, uh, excuse me, cousin and godfather of one Greg Berhalter. Uh, tell me which one of those two dudes you think is a, a legitimate a legitimate figure in his sport. And then uh, there's a couple of soccer leagues around the globe that are shuttering their doors and shutting it down for the season, so I'll touch on that. And then we'll get into the meat of the episode and talk about the five locations that I think U.S. soccer ought to play their World Cup qualifiers, which means they will play none of them in any of those stadiums because uh, they're a dumbass organization that has no idea what they're doing. Um, but anyway... So before we get into all of that, I want to just take a minute to remind you that we are coming to you from the Fave Affirm studio. Uh, Fave Affirm, if you are uh, having bankruptcy-related issues, you know, with the, the, the coronavirus, it, it ain't playing around. Uh, it's affected everybody in some sort of way. If you've been furloughed, if you've lost income, if you've been laid off, if you've experienced a massive increase in medical expenses, uh, maybe you or somebody you know has gotten the coronavirus, God forbid. And, you know, if, you, if you're running out of options, the folks at Favor Firm can always be of assistance to you. If you're in North Mississippi or West Tennessee, give them a call at 662-536-1116, and they can get you set up with an appointment to discuss your options. Also want to remind everybody that when eventually we get guests on this show, uh, they're going to be brought to you on the Atom Technologies hotline for all of your business telephone needs. Give them a call at 901-251-2326. Um, I don't know how many people are in the need of business phones right now with everybody working from home, but when you go back to work, give the folks at Atom Technologies a call. So a real quick rundown on the miscellaneous tab here is one of the things that everybody is struggling with right now is trying to create content because obviously there's no games, there's no leagues, there's no there's nothing to talk about. So everybody's got their own little listicle, everybody's got this. Um, it's difficult, it's depressing, it's got me feeling kind of down in the blues. Down in the dumps, I should say. I'm growing depressed. I'm growing very, very, very depressed. You know, there's there, there's reports out there that teams are uh, can't. You know, there's a couple of reports so far about 
leagues being canceled. League One in France and uh, Argentina's league have said they're done for the season. And, you know, if that happens in the U.S., if it happens to the USL... I would be quite devastated if the USL took a page out of League Un and Argentina Super League's book. Um, I don't know if that's going to happen. But anyway, enough with the doom and gloom and on to uh, interesting things. Uh, there was a basically a book club meeting at World Soccer Talk earlier in the day today where we just kind of ran down everybody's favorite soccer-themed books. Uh, there were a lot of them in there that didn't really strike my fancy. Um, but I'm sure if you go back, they've got it on YouTube and they've got it on their Facebook page as well. So if you wanted to go back and see it, all the recommendations, I'm sure you could go ahead and check that out. I've got three here for you that I'm going to recommend, uh, two that I've read and one that I haven't, which I'll get to in a second. The first one is called the Mammoth Book of the World Cup from the closest games to the best players. It's written by a guy named Nick Holt. This might be the best soccer book I've ever read in my life. Very comprehensive, very thorough, very in-depth. It covers... Every World Cup from 1930 all the way through 20, 2010, and then um, it was published uh, during qualification for 2014, so it touches on that a little bit. There is uh, obviously some discussion in here about the Women's World Cup as well. Uh, you can learn a lot, especially about some of the World Cups from days of yore, long, long time ago. Uh, they've got maps, they've got photos, host countries, uh, stadium sites. Very good book, highly recommend it. The Mammoth Book of the World Cup by Nick Holt. Uh, next one I want to recommend is Soccernomics. Um, this is must-read for any soccer fan uh, by Simon Cooper and Stefan Szymanski. Basically, soccer's version of Moneyball. It's about how much how much money gets spent on transfer fees, players, who teams are going after, who you should be going after, what kind of shots you should be taking, corner kicks, penalty shootout breakdowns with a Basque economist who... Uh, tried to help Chelsea win the 2008 Champions League final against Manchester United, but Nicholas Anelka decided that he knew better. Uh, look that up. Um, a lot going on in there. Highly recommend it again, Soccernomics. And then the last book recommendation I have for you is Bruce Arena's book called What's Wrong With Us. And this is one that I haven't read yet, and I wasn't going to. And I asked, I was like, look, I'm still mad about this, and for Bruce Arena to get a book deal just pissed me off. But... Is it worth a read? And apparently there's, obviously, according to folks that I talk to, inside sources, there is a lot of excuses and a lot of self-aggrandizing and a lot of exagger, a lot of, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Excuses, there's a lot of, there's a justification, there's a lot of that from Arena, but apparently there's also a lot of other good stuff in there. So, What's Wrong With Us by Bruce Arena, I'm going to check that out. I'm stacked up, I got a lot of non-soccer books ahead of this one. But that's one that uh, was recommended to me, and so I'm going to recommend it to y'all. Uh, the next thing is uh, U.S. Soccer just ran a survey, a Twitter poll, Facebook, Instagram, where they said, hey, what's your favorite U.S. soccer kit of all time? And surprise, surprise, the number one and number two favorite soccer kits, according to the fans, quote-unquote, are the two kits that U.S. Soccer is still currently selling on their website. Gee, imagine that. Uh, the, two, the two current kits that really nobody likes... Those are the ones that U.S. Soccer claims the fans like. Not the Waldos, which everybody loves. Not the Centennials, which everybody loves. Not the red 2011 with the blue sash that I like. Not the blue 2010 one with the white sash that I like. Not the denim ones from 94. No, the ones that they're selling now are the favorites. Go to hell. 
Speaking of go to hell in U.S. soccer, they closed the development academy down. Everybody's asking me, what do you think about that? Don't really care. That's just whatever. The development academy really never produced anybody of note. Um, it saves money. Uh, even though U.S. soccer is getting a bailout from the federal government, which is hilarious given that they're sitting on $180 million in extra cash, which they've probably uh, thrown away uh, in various lawsuits that they've had to defend. But anyway... And finally, uh, for this segment, uh, there was an article from Brian Strauss in Sports Illustrated where Grant Wall is thankfully no longer employed about uh, Greg Berhalter uh, is the cousin and godson of Boston Red Sox rate Carl Yastrzemski. Obviously, you know my disdain for Greg Berhalter, and which is well documented, but I still think this was an article worth checking out, obviously because we've got nothing better to do during the quarantine. So that's, uh, that's the quick rundown. Now we're into the meat. The real reason we're doing this podcast is because the American Outlaws a couple of weeks ago said, where would you like to see the U.S. men's national team play their five home World Cup qualifiers? Uh, obviously, World Cup qualifying is a little bit different uh, this go-round. Um, a, no one expects to get there. Unlike, like I, I certainly don't expect to get to Qatar, not with our current state of affairs. Um, but there's also, you know, it used to be the semifinal round where you'd get three home games, three away games, and then the hex, obviously five home games, five away games. Not the case anymore. Now, if, if you're in the top six, you're just automatically into the hex, and somehow it ties into the Nations League, and then sometimes, somehow, it's wrapped up in the Gold Cup, and, and I don't understand any of it, because, uh, Vic Montagnani, Montaglioni, whatever the hell the head of CONCACAF's name is, the dude from Canada, he's a moron, and um, everything was working just fine, and all of a sudden we had to make it better. But it hasn't made it better. He's made it more confusing, and nothing makes any sense anymore. But five home games, and um, tried to be reasonable with it, and I've got uh, five stadiums, five cities, reasons behind it. Um... One thing that this actually topic made me think of is an article that I wrote for World Soccer Talk back in February about cities where U.S. soccer, the men's national team, needs to start playing more games. Uh, I don't know if any of you read it. I, I made sure to put Memphis on that list. The likelihood of them getting a game here is next to none, but they should play here because they've never played here before, and attendance is suck everywhere else anyway, so why the hell not? Um, uh, that, actually, uh, that article actually got U.S. soccer all hot and bothered, and from their official communications account, basically called me a, they mentioned me by name and called me a liar. Uh, so go to hell, U.S. soccer, again. Um, did actually get a little bit of response on this uh, on Twitter from one Corinne Kennedy of uh, the Commercial Appeal, Memphis 901 SC beat writer. Uh, I, I miss getting to hang out in the press box with her and John Varlis and all, all of our pals down at the Memphis 901 FC, and hopefully we'll get to be back in there at some point this year. But uh, her response when I said, where um, I put up on Twitter, I mentioned that I was going to do this pod, and I said, where do you want the U.S. to play? And she said, Soldier Field, and had the little uh, hearts in your eyes emoji. And Soldier Field is a quality venue. Uh, the U.S. Uh, has frequently played there, played well there, drawn well there. The problem is... For World Cup qualifying, you absolutely have to ensure that it's home field advantage. And more often than not, if the U.S. is playing in an NFL stadium against one of the better teams in CONCACAF, they're going to outdraw us in, in, in an NFL stadium. That's why we play Mexico and Columbus so often, because that's the only way we can ensure that we get the bulk of the tickets. Um, the last time the U.S. played a game at Soldier Field was the Gold Cup Final in 2019 against Mexico, and it was a home game for Mexico. 
The last time we played a World Cup qualifier there was 2009 against Honduras, and it was a 50-50 split. So, uh, I, I, like, I appreciate Corinne's response. Uh, I have high regard for Soldier Field, and the fact that Soldier Field is not part of the World Cup bid for 2026 I think is uh, crazy. And FIFA was a little bit asinine. If the reports are to be believed that FIFA wanted Chicago to put a dome on Soldier Field, and they said, nope, we're out, goodbye. Which I can't blame them for, because Soldier Field, part of what it is is the fact that it's an outdoor stadium. But anyway, um, maybe we'll see them playing the Gold Cup there in the future. Maybe another Copa America, who knows when. But I don't think Soldier Field is going to work for World Cup qualifying. And also, um, playing Costa Rica at Red Bull Arena... This is bad. This is very, very bad. Can't do that again. Red Bull Arena, you're out. You're not a World Cup qualifying venue. We might get to play there in the Gold Cup or some high-profile friendly. Not playing Red Bull Arena for World Cup qualifying. And because, again, you run into the same problem. If you're playing in a massive city like New York or L.A., those are there's large immigrant populations there from all over the globe. So you're not going to get home field advantage playing a CONCACAF team in a World Cup qualifier in New York or L.A. So... Now, on to the list of where I think we can get good home field advantage, uh, maximize revenue, all that good stuff. List coming right up. So, the first place I'm going to try to do, not necessarily, and again, sometimes these venues are going to depend, this is not set in stone. Obviously, depending on what the schedule is, uh, depending on who we play, which, you know, when we play which opponent, who the other opponents are going to be. But just in a vacuum, I think these would be the best five places to have World Cup qualifiers. The first one on the list, Children's Mercy Park in Kansas City with a capacity of 18,467. So the, 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 the venue's only been open nine years now. It hasn't been open, open a decade yet. It opened up in 2011. Uh, was originally Livestrong Sporting Park, and then it was just Sporting Park after Livestrong either... I don't remember if Livestrong went belly up or if they were just, you know, with the association with Lance Armstrong and the steroids and the cheating, if they just kind of wanted to go, ee, don't want to necessarily associate with that. Anyway, it's Children's Mercy Park now, and it's one of the best stadium, one of the best soccer stadiums in the country. It's already something of a hallowed ground, you could say, of American soccer. A lot of big events have been there. There's been two Open Cup Finals. There's been an MLS Cup Final. There's been an MLS All-Star Game. The 2012 Olympic Qualifying Final and the 2016 Olympic Qualifying Group Stage was there. The U.S. Men's National Team has played there twice in World Cup Qualifying. Then in 2012, they beat Guatemala 3-1. And then in 2013, they beat Jamaica 2-0. Graham Zussi got a goal in his home, got the game winner in his home stadium, which was super cool. About four days before they went down to Panama and Zussi saved Mexico's bacon and came back and was San Zussi. So 2-0 in World Cup qualifying there. They've played three Gold Cup games there. They beat Guadalupe at 1-0 in 2011. They drew 1-1 with Panama in 2015. And they drew Panama, no, they beat Panama 1-0 in 2019. They also played a friendly there in 2016 against Bolivia. So the men's national team has played at Children's Mercy Park in Kansas City six times. They were, I believe they were over capacity. They, they got like 20,000 against Guadalupe in 2011. Sold out in 2015. Sold out in 2013. Just short of a sellout in 2012. And just sell out of a, short of a sellout in 2019. Well, well short of a sellout uh, against Bolivia in 2016. That was a stretch where like 
eight straight U.S. friendlies at home drew under 10,000 people. Um, so typically they draw very well there. Um, always good home field advantage. It's very hard for opposing teams to come in and win there, judging by the fact that it hasn't happened yet. Um, this is where I would play Costa Rica. Costa Rican clubs in the CONCACAF Champions League have traditionally had difficulty going in and beating Sporting Kansas City. Uh, I wanted Peter Vermees for the U.S. men's national team. If we had to have an American MLS manager, Vermees would have been my choice. Uh, he wanted the job. Dan Flynn promised an interview. Just never got one. Got to have Jay Burhalter's brother on there. Anyway, so Children's Mercy Park, that is where I would have a game. I would definitely play against Costa Rica there. Can't have a repeat of Costa Rica 2017 at Red Bull Arena, where they come in, have 50% of the crowd, and then beat your ass into the ground. Can't have that happen. Um, one of the one thing about one of the reasons I play Costa Rica here is because of all of the Central American countries, Costa Rica typically, um, it's my understanding, I got into a discussion with a guy from El Salvador one time, and apparently the, uh, the economy and the quality of living in Costa Rica is a little bit higher than it is everywhere else in Central America, so there's not as many immigrants from Costa Rica here in the U.S., and if they are, they're in places like L.A., New York, or Miami. So playing in Kansas City, I can't imagine that there's going to be 6,000 Costa Rican fans at a game in Kansas City. So that's why I say play Costa Rica there. Next up on the list, Allianz Field in St. Paul, Minnesota, with a capacity of 19,400. Um, this one's obviously one of the newest stadiums in the country. Uh, just opened up last year, I believe, uh, 2019. It played host to 24 Minnesota United games last year. That's that's quite a bit, considering that the regular season is only 17 games. I mean, it had games in the regular seasons, a playoff game, open cup games, and several exhibitions. Drove very well. Wonderwall. Everybody loves Wonderwall. It's a loud place. Um, the, the, the men's team has played there before as well. Played there in 2019 in the Gold Cup opener against Guyana. Beat them 4 to nothing. And by all accounts, that place was an insane asylum. It was rocking, it was loud, it was raucous. People were into it, people were fired up, which is impressive considering that the three games prior to that had been a 3-0 loss to Venezuela, a 1-0 loss to Jamaica, and a 1-1 draw against Chile. Those were the three games leading up, and to have a overcapacity crowd bouncing off the walls, hooting and hollering, flares, smoke bombs, all that awesome stuff... Uh, is, is mightily impressive. It was the only, and, and really, by and large, it was the only good atmosphere all year. Well, the Gold Cup final against Mexico was an outstanding atmosphere, but it was a road atmosphere. It didn't do us any good. This was the only good home atmosphere of the year that favored us in 2019 was in St. Paul. And so, um, this is going to maybe uh, tick some people off. This might be a little bit sacrilegious, but this is where you got to play Mexico now. World Cup qualifying, you got to play Mexico. Preferably, uh, obviously you'd love it for it to be in November, December, January, February. Although, back in 2016, we played Mexico in Columbus in November and lost. Um, but now that the curse of Dos Zero is gone, see, the, I, I believe, I believe, I'm a real big believer that in um, uh, curses are only real if you allow them to be real. 
Like for years, the Cubs allowed the curse of the goat to be real, and so it was real. And so anytime anything went wrong, you can just blame the curse. That gives the curse, in quotes, more power and more hold over you. Beating Mexico 2-0 four times in a row in the stadium in World Cup qualifying, that curse was real for Mexico until they decided that, hey, we got a lot of really talented players. Juan Carlos Cesario is a great manager. Uh, Michael Bradley is still on the field for the U.S. This is not some sort of daunting task. This is a 24,000-seat stadium. In reality, it's got a, a special place in the heart of American soccer because it was the first soccer-specific stadium, and, and you know the national team had a lot of success there. That stadium's a dump, and it's been a dump for a while. So let's not act like having to move the Mexico game away from Manfrey Stadium is all of a sudden some just debacle. Dosa zero is no moss. And getting back to the point of the curses, I believe that, that Clint Dempsey felt that curses were real, that it was in the minds of the Mexico players. Because if you remember in 2013, he drew a penalty in the 90th minute with the U.S. already up 2-0. And he's never come out and said this, but I will believe, until I, until he's, until I hear it from the horse's mouth, I will believe he missed that penalty on purpose to keep it 2-0 every single time. Didn't end up mattering because the very next time Mexico ruled in, they beat us 2-1. Uh, not only did, not only did Dos Cicero end, but our unbeaten streak in the stadium ended, which just sucked. Um, I have a theory on that, and it, it, I floated this out there, and I got a lot of pushback and a lot of people very angry with me for that theory. So I'm not going to discuss it here. If you see me sometime, you can ask me, and we'll discuss it one-on-one -on -one like rational people. Um, but I have a theory on why Mexico was able to win that game because of an event that had happened four days, four days prior to it. Um, but now you got to move Mexico, the get Mexico game to St. Paul. Obviously, 19,400, not an opportunity for a lot of Mexico fans to snatch up tickets. Theoretically, very, very cold weather. And yes, it's been cold in Columbus before, but let's not pretend that Ohio cold is Minnesota cold. Very big difference between the two. Um, so that's my thought. Um, got no more games at Maffrey Stadium because it's a dump. Put Mexico someplace where they can't overwhelm you. Map, uh, Allianz Field was the only good atmosphere for the U.S. in 2019. Got to have a Mexico game there. This next one's kind of off the wall, but I, I've, I've raved about what I think this stadium can and might be. It's weird because, I mean, it's, it's completed. It's been built. It hasn't officially opened yet because there haven't been any games yet, but Lynn Family Stadium in Louisville, capacity 14,000. Obviously, um, I mean, I don't know. I, there's, there's, it's got no history, right? Because there haven't been any games in there. But think of, if it, think, it makes sense. Obviously, I've got a soft spot for the city of Louisville. That's where my parents are from. Um, Louisville City's got one of the best followings in the USL. I know I'd, I'd love for that for Louisville Memphis to be a rivalry in the USL like it was in the old Metro Conference and Conference USA, and for one year in the American. But it's the best soccer-specific stadium in the league. It's better than several MLS stadiums, and you know it's got a roof partially covering the seating. It can get, I'm sure it's going to get loud. Uh, Louisville is not a place where there's just thousands and thousands and thousands of uh, fans of Central American teams. 
So I don't necessarily have an opponent that you should play here. I would say maybe Honduras or El Salvador. Again, and this is all contingent upon who manages to get through. You got to figure Mexico and Costa Rica are locks to get through to the final round of qualifying because they've been locks for like the last six rounds of World Cup, six qualifying cycles. But as far as Lynn Family Stadium, I would say if you if you get a Central American team, say Honduras or El Salvador or Guatemala, this would be a good place to play them, Lynn Stadium. Um, you know, Louisville City, like I said, they've been awesome. They've got great support. The NWSL is going to be starting a team there next year, I believe. And so with the NWSL going there, you've got to figure the U.S. women's team is going to make an appearance there very soon because one thing U.S. soccer loves to do since they're so in bed with MLS and the NWSL, well, they're being in bed with the NSL makes a little bit more sense given that U.S. soccer is the one who funds the league and pays everybody's salary. But what we, what, we how often do we see it in MLS where somebody opens up a new soccer-specific stadium and then within the year there's a U.S. men's team and a U.S. women's team game being played in that stadium? And I don't have any reason to think that that's not going to happen at Lynn Stadium in Louisville. So if they're going to get an NWSL's coming, more than likely going to get a women's game, might as well put a men's World Cup qualifier there, right, against a Central World America. And again, obviously, yes, 14,000, not a lot of people. But you're struggling to draw that anyway, so might as well do it and make it look good on TV and make it sound good and make it difficult for an opposing team to come in and get a result. Now, if you've been keeping track, the first three I've had in here were all soccer-specific stadiums. That, um, that was the U.S. soccer model for the last qualifying cycle, not because they necessarily wanted to ensure home field advantage, but, and this is not just a theory that I have. This was a confirmed U.S. soccer position. They were very proud of this. They put it up on a PowerPoint position at the uh, annual general meeting, where if you play in soccer-specific stadiums, the availability of tickets is lower, meaning demand is higher, and you can charge more. That's not just me spitballing conspiracy theory, none of that. That is U.S. soccer's stated position, play in small stadiums, make more money. So the first three fit nicely with that. Now, wouldn't you think that if you charged the same amount or a little bit less and played in a really big stadium and sold 45,000 tickets, you might make more money that way? I'm not an economics major like Sunil Gulati, but that just seems to be fairly common sense. If you charge $25 a ticket for and sell 45000 of them, you might make a lot of money. But So now these next two are going to be big stadiums. And the first one of these two big stadiums I have is Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta. Capacity for soccer is listed at 42500 but it's expandable up to 67000 I'm sure there's a lot of folks listening to this who have been to a game in Atlanta or watched them on TV and know how insane that place can get. That is already, it only opened up in September of 2017. That place is already American Soccer Valhalla, okay? It's had an MLS All-Star Game, an MLS Cup Final, a U.S. Open Cup Final, the Campiones Cup. It's played host to 56 total soccer games. Average attendance through those 56 games, 53,198. All of those are, uh, 55 of, well, 54 of those are Atlanta United games. One of them was the MLS All-Star Game. And then one of them was a Mexico-friendly against Venezuela. So that was former Atlanta United manager Tata Martino in Mexico playing against current Atlanta United player Joseph Martinez in Venezuela. 
and that game drew very well. But you've got to have a U.S. game here. The, men ha the men's team has played in Atlanta once, ever. That was the 2015 Gold Cup semifinal against Jamaica. And technically that game drew 70,000 people, but that's only because it was a doubleheader with the Mexico-Panama game immediately after. And so you tell me which game you think actually drew 70,000 people. Um, so not only does, the, does Atlanta draw very well for soccer, 53,198 through 56 games, uh, crowds have hit 70,000 in that stadium 11 times, and they've only been below 40,000 one time. That's wildly impressive. That one time below 40,000 was 35,000. If we got 35,000 people for a World Cup qualifier, that'd be fantastic. I can only think of two times that's happened in the last, uh, last over the last two cycles, against Panama in 2013 and against St. Vincent and the Grenadines, oddly enough, in 2015. So, the, the, the opponent that you want to play here is Panama. And the reason you want to play Panama here is because uh, they are one of those Central American teams that doesn't have the ability to completely overwhelm a stadium here. Um, there's not a... I mean, you'll see they might have 100 or 200, but it's not going to be Costa Rica with 40,000, you know, with... Uh, 13,000 at Red Bull Arena. It's not going to be Mexico with 60,000 at Soldier Field. It's not going to be El Salvador with 40,000 in Baltimore. Um, they'll have little knots, but Panama is not going to bring thousands and thousands and thousands of people. But Atlanta has proven they can support soccer, and they'll go to they'll go to games. So there's no reason like like the reason you want to avoid playing an NFL stadium is so that you don't get you don't lose that home field advantage. But if you play Panama in a place that draws well in soccer, odds are that you're going to have a really, 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 really awesome home field advantage. And I think that would that would just be just a massive deal to have a World Cup qualifier in Atlanta. Obviously, you can't have it during football season because that would suck away all of the attention. you got to have it over the summer or in the spring. Um, and obviously, we'd, and again, this is all contingent upon being allowed to play soccer again, and it's dependent upon who the opponents are and what the schedule looks like. In a vacuum, the best opponent to play at Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta is Panama. And last, but certainly not least, and I'm sure in the last segment saying I was going to put two big stadiums on here, this is the big stadium that I don't know why they, don't, they didn't play any qualifiers here during the last cycle, they should go here at least once every every qualifying cycle. They need to play a game at CenturyLink Field in Seattle. Capacity for soccer is 69,000. Expandable up to 69,000. No, this is a no-brainer. There's no reason not to play there. None at all. To not play World Cup qualifiers there is incredibly irresponsible. Again, I mean, we played a qualifier there in 2013 against Panama and drew 40,000. And the only reason they couldn't draw more is because there's some goofy-ass city of Seattle. Which, by the way, the city of Seattle itself, like, architecturally and weather-wise and sporting-wise, it's cool. But, like, the politics of it and, like, the the grift and, and corruption, which you get in any big city. But it's like, I mean, that's a lunatic-ass city. Um, and, and the reason I say that is they have this ordinance, apparent, allegedly, according to Sounders fans, that... 
there are not allowed, you cannot, in the downtown area at any given time, you cannot have more than X number of people. And because, and the only reason anybody knows about that apparently is because when we played Panama in 2013 and only drew 40,000, which by itself is wildly impressive, and if we did that on a regular basis, I, I wouldn't have anything to complain about. But uh, the Mariners were, I guess, right next door playing a home game, and so they had, U.S. Soccer had to limit the number of tickets they could sell to the soccer game because there were however many people at the baseball game, and you apparently in Seattle can't have too many people downtown. Um, so that's kind of lunatic and insane. So if you want to... Got it. You got to play in Seattle. I don't care if there's another event going on. I don't care if, you know, whatever. Put a game for qualifying in Seattle. Lunatic City? Sure. Um, Soccer City? Hell yes. There's no reason. It's, I mean, just not putting a game in Seattle for qualifying is just, it's asinine. I mean, Seattle from two... Like, from 2008, even before they were in MLS, all the way, basically until Atlanta showed up, Seattle was the standard bearer for American soccer support. It was. It was the flight. Like, it, you look at Seattle and you go, this is what American soccer support can be. It can be 39,000 every single game. It can be multiple crowds of 65,000 plus. It can be, you know... I mean, I remember in 2012... Uh, they played Chelsea. While Chelsea was the reigning Champions League winners, they drew 55,000. And granted, it's an exhibition. But later that year, they played the Portland Timbers. And that was a bad Portland Timbers team because that was before uh, Portland got good. They got like 60, 68, 69,000 people there, and it was an insane asylum. I mean, you had the, the reigning Champions League winners versus a team from down the road that had been in MLS for three years and wasn't particularly good. I guess it was 2012, not 2013. Um, and the atmosphere is wildly different. That, uh, and then not only was the World Cup qualifying atmosphere against Panama awesome, the Copa America in 2016 against Ecuador drew, drew 47,000 people. And that was another raucous, insane, wild atmosphere. No reason not to put a World Cup qualifier in Seattle. None at all. And as far as an opponent, who you might want to play there, um, nobody specific. I guess your best bet might be to play either you know Jamaica or Trinidad and Tobago, maybe one of the Caribbean teams, just since that's a long way for them to have to go. Because uh, I remember um, right before that Panama game in 2013, the U.S. had been down playing in Jamaica when Brad Evans scored the winner. And there was, it was well documented how long of a flight that was from Kingston to Seattle. So... If you can get one of those Caribbean teams playing there, that is that would be travel-wise, definitely. And again, most of the Caribbean teams, unless you're playing in Miami, aren't really going to have a huge, massive amount of support. And Seattle, even if there were a lot of other fans, uh, I feel like this, the soccer fans in Seattle would show out and make it a massive home field advantage for the U.S. anyway. So I think that's probably going to wrap it up here. If you, again, if you missed it, if you tuned in late, whatever. Uh, the five stadiums I think that the U.S. should play World Cup quali qualifying games in. Children's Mercy Park in Kansas City against Costa Rica. Allianz Field in St. Paul against Mexico. Lynn Family Stadium in Louisville against uh, some, some variation of Hon Honduras, El Salvador, Guatemala. 
uh, Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta against Panama, and then CenturyLink Field in Seattle against either Jamaica or Trinidad and Tobago or whoever comes out of the Caribbean. So that is going to wrap it up here for us this uh, on this edition of the show. Uh, just want to remind everybody that we're coming to you from the Fava Firm Studios. Um, if you are facing bankruptcy-related issues, garnishments, repossessions, foreclosures, eviction, if you've lost your job, if you've been furloughed or laid off or had to take a pay cut, or if you've, God forbid, caught in the coronavirus and have skyrocketing medical expenses, give the folks at Fava Firm a call at 662-536-1116, and that's for folks in North Mississippi or West Tennessee. And in the eventuality that we get guests on the program, they're going to be brought to you by the Adam Technologies Hotline. For all your business telephone needs, give them a call at 901-251-2326. That's Adam Technologies. And uh, going to go ahead and shut it down here for the evening. And once you guys listen to this, let me know. Shoot me a message on Twitter, um, at 901SoccerPod, at LDoc93, Facebook, 901Soccer. Um, what do you guys think? I'm sure this list does not please everybody. I'm sure somebody's mad about one city or another being left off. Uh, and yes, if the U.S., say, is playing Mexico and has a home qualifier right before that, you obviously want to play in Denver to get the altitude, you know, preparedness. Um, but in, like I said, in a vacuum, you give me five stadiums. These are my five. If you have a problem with that, just let me know and we will, we'll, we'll, have a knockdown, drag out, wildly entertaining argument on Twitter, and uh, we'll talk to you later.